Hey everyone, it's Shab. I just wanted to give a huge thank you to Padamaru for reaching out and offering to host this recording of Be Boring. Without him, you, I'm not quite sure how you'd be hearing it. Um, I went to put it on the Let's Talk Limited blog that I started a couple of months ago, and when I went to upload the audio files, it told me that my um, I wasn't eligible to do that with the plan that I currently have. Um, so while I did set up a Patreon a while back, I didn't really have any idea what I would be able to offer to any of my patrons. I currently have one that I'm very grateful for. So while I can't put um, recorded versions of my articles up on the blog right now, um, I did enjoy making the recorded version of Be Boring, so if it's something that you enjoy and would like to hear more of in the future, um, please consider checking out the Patreon. Talking about the Patreon makes me uncomfortable, so let's just get to the content. Thanks again to Padamaru and Farming Eternal for um, graciously offering to host this recording of Be Boring, Drafting and Building Better Decks. Section 1. Limited at my local game store. Friday Night Magic at my local game store had two distinct groups of players, the drafters and team constructed. A few mages occasionally visited the other guild, but for the most part, players stuck to their preferred format. When a new player arrived at the store, each group would recruit the novice to join their side. If a beginner listened to some of the more vocal members of Team Constructed described draft, they might imagine the draft process goes like this. Eight drafters open packs. The person who opens the most powerful rare is the secret winner of the draft, unless a more powerful rare is opened in packs two or three. Then... The other cards magically dance their way from the packs into the drafters' decks. The drafters play the games just in case the secret winner of the draft accidentally eats the rare or lights it on fire, but it's mostly just a formality. The drafter who opens the best rares inevitably wins the draft, and then they all go home. Jokes aside, I've encountered a lot of players who give the same reason for disliking draft. The rares are all that matters or matter too much. As I transitioned from new face to known quantity at my local game store, I noticed that week after week, Friday after Friday, the same player was usually 2-0 heading into the last round. Clearly, this was the best rare opener at the store. Even more extraordinary, this skill followed him across town where he was regularly winning drafts at a different store. What I learned over time is that this player wasn't great at opening rares, of course. He was great at applying limited fundamentals during the draft, deck building, and games. Friday after Friday, draft after draft, he built functional, two-color decks, made high-percentage plays during the game, and won regularly. Despite what some of my friends on Team Constructed will tell you, opening good rares is far from all that matters in draft, though it certainly helps. Consistent success in Limited comes from following fundamentals, plain and simple. These same fundamental skills that lead to success at your local game store are the same ones that lead to success on the Eternal Draft Ladder. 
Today, we're going back to the basics. If you're a high-level drafter looking for an edge in Eternal Draft, you're probably not going to find it here. But if you're like me, veteran drafter, maybe you need a reminder to follow fundamentals once in a while. The previous format, Echoes of Eternity, made us all a very greedy bunch after all. This article is intended to provide the limited deck building guidelines that all dedicated drafters learn and internalize at some point. If you're a newer drafter or just trying to build better limited decks, welcome. Let's talk limited. Section 2. Limited against Luis Scott Vargas. Okay, so you can win some games in Southern Maine by following fundamentals. But what if you want to compete at the highest level? Let's move beyond the local game store and turn the difficulty up to 11. Let's say you had to play exactly one game against occasional Eternal Streamer and Magic Hall of Famer Luis Scott Vargas. As a handicap, you get two choices. Option A, you are guaranteed to have a bomb rare in your deck. Option B, you're guaranteed to have power and cards to play on turns 2 to 5 while LSE experiences normal variance. In a single-game scenario, I could see taking the deck with the Draco Shaman circlet and just crossing your fingers. He's LSV, he probably drafted a good deck and is going to be playing cards on curve anyway, so I might as well take the bomb. That sounds reasonable enough. But let's say you were going to play against LSV a thousand times. Do you still take the bomb? What about 10,000 times? Are you still taking the bomb over the guarantee of playing your cards on curve? Given the choice of option A or B over the course of 10,000 games, I think it would be wildly incorrect to choose option A, even if I could pick the rare. Sure, there will be games where I draw and cast the bomb, but it's not like LSV is just going to scoop because I played a great card. The best way for me to beat LSV is to use all of my power on turns 2-5 to five and hope that he can't do the same, either because he's stuck on resources or just drew poorly. Over the course of so many games, remember, we're talking about 10,000 games now, LSV will definitely experience the bad end of variance. He'll get stuck on two power while I spend five or six per turn. He can't leverage his play scale nearly as much, I think, if I'm casting multiple spells per turn while he's casting one. Over such a long stretch, I think you'd win far more games against LSV by choosing option B instead of option A. Obviously, I wouldn't get a handicap if I were to see LSV in-game. There would be no guarantee that I hit power and play cards until turn 6 or 7. What I can do, though, is build decks that maximize my chance to replicate option B in that game and any other. You can't make yourself open better rares, but you can build decks that allow you to consistently cast your spells on curve by following fundamentals. Over your next 10,000 games, your focus should be to build draft decks that have a good chance to mimic option B. That's all you have control over, and, I would argue, what really determines most games of Limited. Before I knew the first thing about Eternal Draft's archetypes or how to read signals in asynchronous draft, I would just follow drafting and deck-building fundamentals I learned from Magic. You can win a lot of games by building boring, functional, two-color decks with decent creatures and interaction. You can sit down and draft a deck with the potential to win games in any format, even one you've never seen. To start, we'll focus on these guidelines that provide the foundation for building consistent decks with the potential to do broken things. Section 3. 
the curve. Um, this section uses some visuals. I use deck lists from uh, Eternal Player BetterUp, who recently um, decided to take a break to step away from the game. Um, so I just wanted to say thanks again for letting me use uh, the deck lists and uh, for all the streams and uh, great information that you provided. And I think I speak for a lot of people when I say um, losing to you was not great, but we will um, be more than happy to um, to have you back should you decide to, to return. Um, so thanks again. I can't explain the curve any better than Gavin Verhey did in this article. And there's a link. Um, you can find this either on my blog, which is Let's Talk Limited at WordPress, or on eternalwarcry.com, which I highly recommend you check out. Um, there's a link which will take you to a separate article on Channel Fireball um, that Gavin Verhey wrote, um, where he explains the curve in, in pretty good detail. So in this article, I provide the quick version. You want variation and distribution when it comes to your card's casting cost. You want a certain number of cards that cost 2 power, 3 power, 4, 5, 6 plus. Most decks will have far more cheap cards, 2 to 3 power, than expensive cards, 4 to 6 power. Um, the following 7 win deck lists are used with permission from streamer and top drafter BetterUp. You don't even have to look at the cards, just look at the curve graphic in the top right corner. So in each example, you can see that the curve follows 4 to um, sort of a normal distribution, I would say. So it looks kind of like a hill that then flattens out. Um, but if you need the visuals, please check out my articles in one of those uh, places mentioned. Continuing. So if you looked at all the seven win Eternal and Magic deck lists over the past year, my guess is that most of them would have a curve that looks similar. You maximize the chances that you're able to spend all your power on turns two, three, four, and five if you focus on your curve. If you do that and play reasonable cards, not even great cards, you have a chance to win a huge percentage of games. Almost all limited decks are built and drafted with a curve in mind. You should be considering it on some level during the entire draft. Um, one aspect of Gavin's article that I want to emphasize is that you should think about what turn you expect to cast the card instead of just its casting cost. Um, Towering Arachnid isn't really a two-drop, because you never want to play it on turn two. Uh, Relentless Pursuit costs two, but you will never play it on that turn. So even though your deck might have eight cards that cost two power, that doesn't necessarily mean you have eight cards you can play on turn two. Section four, curving out with commons. It feels really sweet when you outsmart your opponent, but in reality, you don't always need to do it to win games of Limited. You're playing against other smart people. You're not going to outthink them all the time, nor do you need to. Sometimes you win just because you played your cards on curve. It's boring, but that's the truth. John Finkel doesn't lose 35% of his Pro Tour matches because he makes bad decisions or gets outsmarted 35% of the time. He and other players of his caliber get the bad end of variance just like the rest of us. When that happens, you want to be the player who is attacking on turns 3, 4, and 5. Be boring. Take unexciting cards that fill out your curve. Pay for your next draft. Here are some examples of early curve-out sequences that can happen with just commons. So in Justice, we have turn 2, Chain Whip Bludgeoner. 
Turn 3, Caravan Guard. Turn 4, Orc Official Imbuing Caravan Guard. Turn 5, I wrote Nightwatch Broadsword, but honestly, you could even miss turn 5. Or not play a 5-drop, and this sequence would still be really good. Then with turn 6, Smogwing Tinker. Um, a 6-8 ground creature, a relic weapon with 4 power, and a 4-4 flyer all on turn 6 sure ain't bad. You won't curve out like this every game, and you won't win every single game even when you do. But you will have a chance to win all of those games. In Fire, turn 2, Flameheart Patroller. Turn 3, attack for 3, play Rebel Sharpshooter. Turn 4, Corrosive Daggers on Sharpshooter, make a rustling, give the Sharpshooter a quick draw. Um, play chemical rounds, probably on a, on a blocker, attack for seven. Turn five, gun down or dust hoof brawler, attack for eight. Turn six, uh, multiple cards or armed and dangerous. Uh, you could easily replace chemical rounds with fire symbol on turn four in this sequence, um, and it would still be great. In time, we have turn two, apprentice mage, turn three, cult recruiter, turn four, battery mage, turn five, hunting allosaur. Again, hands like this won't happen every game, but you'll be surprised how often they do if you build a deck with a good curve and consistent power base. The sequences described above don't even have uncommons. You don't always have to do broken things to win games, but you will lose every game in which you can't cast your cards. Section 5. Cabs. Cards that affect the board strategy. On episode 296 of Limited Resources, A Fundamental Approach to Limited, Host Marshall, Sutcliffe, and LSV give excellent insight into a number of topics, including building cabs decks. The acronym stands for Cards That Affect the Board Strategy, but my brain has internalized it as Cards That Affect the Board State, which works just as well for me. One overarching theme of cabs and the fundamental limited resources approach is that it allows you to build functional decks with a good chance to win games almost every time you finish a draft. This approach isn't very exciting. In fact, a lot of correct draft choices are incredibly safe and boring. But here's the thing. You get to make interesting decisions in almost every game you play. That's exciting. You get to win more games and draft more decks. That's exciting. Be boring during the draft and deck building. Have your fun while you're making more meaningful choices and winning games more often. As usual, I'll recommend that you listen to the episode so you can hear directly from LSV, though I believe Marshall came up with the concept, so credit to him. Cab's decks consist of three things. Units, removal spells, um, I would include relic weapons in this category for Eternal, and combat tricks. That's it. No card draw spells or fancy relics, just creatures, tricks, and removal. Marshall and LSV are quick to note that this isn't the optimal way to draft, and that's certainly true. You would never draft Vengeful Flight, for example, but it's a very good starting point for drafting and building limited decks. For those who don't know, um, Magic limited decks consist of 40 cards instead of 45, so the details they provide about the number of units or spells a deck should have don't directly apply to Eternal, though the ratios probably do if you're mathematically inclined. The concepts, however, are 100% applicable. A quick aside... I spent a lot of time memorizing specific cards and interactions from the current limited set, um, the current Magic limited set, when I first started drafting. While that time wasn't exactly wasted, your time is far better utilized learning concepts that can apply across formats. 
I won't delve too deep into the three card types involved in Cavs decks, units, removal, and combat tricks. Your deck should be mostly units. Your removal should be unconditional uh, when you can get it. Your combat tricks should be tricky. For specific numbers, I will refer you to Section 5 of Kalebovich's <laughs> Draft Guide, which recommends at least 15 creatures, but preferably 17 to 19. Apologies about the name. In this format, um, oh, and I was talking about section, um, not section 9, set 9 when I wrote this, so this is referring to Argent Depths. I do not recommend playing 18 to 19 power um, in set 1. Um, set one is really, I think, showing just how great of a limited mechanic plunder is. Part of the reason I'm so comfortable running extra power in set nine is because I can plunder the extra ones away. So when I am talking about this format, in this case, I am referring to Argent Depths, not the set one format that everyone is currently drafting. In this format, Argent Depths, 18 to 19 is the correct number of power based on my experience. I usually start with 19 and look for a reason to stray from that. The newer you are, the more I encourage you to err on the side of too much power instead of too few. Give yourself the best chance you can to cast all your cards. Nothing is less fun than sitting there with cards you can't cast while your opponent kills you. Rather than breaking down how many units and spells go into each Argent Depths archetype, I'd look to, like to focus. what I'd like to focus on are some examples of cards that don't fit Cap's theory. While we could talk about which combat tricks are most efficient or are better in which decks, the truth is that any combat trick is better than a dead card in your hand. So let's take a look at potential dead cards. You can increase your win percentage significantly just by not putting narrow or suboptimal cards in your deck. Minimize mistakes to maximize win percentage applies to both gameplay and deck building. You want your cards to be playable and worth the power you spent as close to 100% of the time as possible. Every card is good sometimes. You want cards that are good all the time or a majority of the time. Don't ask yourself what it could do. Ask yourself what it's likely to do most of the time. Um, these are specific to set nine draft, but I did go through set one and pick some cards that I'll just talk about really quickly. So for Argent Depths, we have Land's Edge. Land's Edge is a relic. It is three power. Um, it's a time card. At the end of your turn, your stun units get plus two, plus two. This card has impacted the outcome of exactly one of my Eternal games, as far as I can recall. A high-level drafter, it was Cassandrath, played it in a Combray deck and absolutely crushed me with it. That's an example of someone who has internalized deck building and knows when they can get away with it. Every other time I've seen it played, it was like my opponent spent three power to do nothing. I've also seen myself draft this card with high hopes, and then put it in my pool during deck building. If you put this card in your deck enough times, there will be some games where it does cool stuff and feels awesome. Your brain is much more likely to remember those games. You will quickly forget the games where it does stone cold nothing, and you basically wasted a card. It'll be cool sometimes, but bad most of the time. Avoid those cards. In time for set one, I have Divining Rod. It's a weapon. Um, it costs six. It gives your creature plus three, plus three. And you can look at, I think, the top five or six cards of your deck um, and find a creature that shares an ability and put them onto the battlefield. 
most of the time, and again, that's how we want to evaluate cards, most of the time, this is going to be a weapon that costs six to give your creature plus three, plus three. Um, and while it's it's nice that this card, unlike some other cards, like Dark Betrayal, like the floor on Divining Rod is still something you can do. It's it's useful, but not at all what you want to be doing with, with six power. Um, so it's a card that looks really intriguing and no doubt will feel really cool when, you know, you pull something off and, um, and get a lot of value out of it. But most of the time, it's just going to be a rare attachment that gives your creature plus three, plus three. Oh, next we have Mysterious Waystone. Mysterious Waystone is a shadow card. It's a cursed relic. It costs two shadow. It costs five. At the end of the cursed player's turn, deal damage to them, and you gain one life. When you sacrifice a unit, increase the, this ability by one. I have, I think, recovered from my Mysterious Waystone addiction. When these decks work, they are extraordinarily fun and satisfying. I don't even want to know how many bad Waystone decks I built. Truly horrendous piles of cards. Here's a question you should ask yourself when you play a card like this. Would this have been better if it were some dorky creature that cost the same amount? In most games that I've cast Mysterious Waystone, even casting a 4-4 would have been more impactful than a 5-cost relic that didn't impact the board the turn that I played it. Casting a 4-4 isn't nearly as fun as Mysterious Waystone, but undoubtedly would have increased my win percentage in a lot of games. For Shadow, um, I picked Sabotage. And while this card... Just in general, you don't want to play discard spells in Limited. Um, because when you draw them in, their late, in the late game, they're usually going to be dead cards. So that is just cards like Sabotage... Um, you know, in Magic, cards like Thoughtseize, cards like Duress, in general, you don't want to play discard spells in Limited because you will hit stuff, but its fail rate is... I mean, you will hit stuff sometimes, but its fail rate is is pretty high. Um, and again, you don't want to put cards in your deck that have the potential to do nothing. Um, and Sabotage is a card like that. Um, sabotage costs one... It's a spell, and it lets you take a spell or attachment out of your opponent's hand. Sorry, I don't have the set one cards in front of me, so I'm just doing those by memory. Next we have Barbarian Camp. Um, Barbarian Camp is a fire relic. It costs four, and it says your units have plus one attack or power. This card has a place in this format. There are definitely decks that can play this card and get four power worth of value out of it. How do you build decks that meet that condition? I don't know. I would have to think long and hard about whether or not to put this card in my deck. There will be games when your opponent has a wide board and this card looks unbeatable. Your brain will remember those games. There will be games when you play this card, it buffs two of your units, and literally any four-cost creature in the format would have been a better play. Spending four power and a whole card is an awful lot of resources for a card that has the potential to do so little. In set one for fire, what did I pick? Oh, Song of War. So Song of War costs two. It's a spell, and it says your units get Warcry. Um, also, this card is another rare, so people are naturally attracted to those. In general, like I, I just don't think that this card is very good. If you have a wide enough board 
to make all of those Warkai triggers, like five or more creatures to make those Warkai triggers impactful, you probably just want something like Rally if you're already attacking with that many creatures. Um, you really don't want to be setting up Warcry triggers for a future turn in most fire decks. Um, again, because this card, in order to be good, one, you have to be the attacker, which is not, um, you know, which is the plan in your fire deck probably, but your board has to be wide already. And if you already have that many creatures that you're attacking with, you're probably at a point where you just want to push damage, not, um, not send not send the power to the to the top of your deck. So um, Song of War looks cool, but I don't... I, I think it looks cooler than it probably actually plays. Oh, next we have Tainted Mark. Tainted Mark is a primal card. It is a relic that costs five, and it says when one or more units hit the cursed player, draw a card. I have not recovered from my Tainted Mark addiction. If there's going to be a card that drafters will collectively overvalue and lose their minds over, it's one that draws an extra card almost every turn. And sometimes on your opponent's turn. I feel all warm and fuzzy inside when I think of all the extra cards I've drawn with Tainted Mark. I do not look back fondly on the times I cast a 5-drop relic while I was being pummeled by my opponent's creatures. This card is so good when it works. A lot of cards that don't fit cabs are really good when they work. The problem is, they don't work a lot of the time, and we tend to forget those games. I'm sure there have been games where I drew exactly one card off of it and thought, yeah, Tainted Mark was fine that game. As if cycling for five is an acceptable game action to take. Don't get me wrong. Tainted Mark is a good card. I almost always play it, and it goes in a much higher percentage of decks than Land's Edge. But I've included it here because sometimes you spend 5 power to do absolutely nothing, and you should be aware when that happens. For set 1, I did... Oh, Second Sight. Second Sight costs 2, it's primal, it's a fast spell, you draw 2 cards, and you, then you put 1 back on the top of your deck. Um, so Second Sight looks like card advantage, um, but it's really not. It's it's a bad form of card selection. So you use a card um, to cast the spell, and then you put a spell back so it doesn't provide card advantage there. And it would be significantly better if instead of putting the card on top of your deck, you, put it, um, you chose a card from your hand to put on the bottom. So... There are some cute niche things you can do with echo cards and putting this on top of your, you know, putting them on top of your deck, but most of the time you're just spending two power um, for a little bit of card selection. So second sight looks like card draw. Um, it, it looks, I think, much better than it actually is. Oh, and next we have Bubble Shield. I'm sure most people know what Bubble Shield does at this point, but it's a justice card. It's double justice. It costs one. It's a fast spell. Give one of your units Aegis, and if you have double primal, you gain an Aegis. This is not a combat trick. This does not affect combat. This is a counter for an opponent's removal spell. Um, I've since done a little bit of research and can confirm this card does see play in Constructed, and those type of cards are typically overvalued in draft. Um, 
Will there be times when you negate your opponent's disappear for one power? Sure. But there will also be times that your opponent misses their fourth power and you can't really punish them because you have this in your hand instead of a creature. Or you can't use this in combat because you don't care about Aegis in that scenario. There are specific decks that I might put this in, like Argentport, but your default setting should be to put this card in your pool. Draft and play cards that affect the board state, and then look for exceptions to that, such as giving a creature Aegis being more valuable because you have Recursion. And for set one, I picked the old version of Bubble Shield, Protect, which costs two, and it's give you or a unit um, Aegis. Honestly, the set one cards, most of them are really good, so it's hard. So it was a little bit harder to find um, examples of cards that um, that I wanted to talk about, which is a good problem to have for a limited set. And last, we have Dark Betrayal. Dark Betrayal is a shadow card. It costs six. Choose a unit in the enemy player's hand to steal and play. It gets charged. Sacrifice it at the end of the turn. You may exhaust a unit to play Dark Betrayal for two less. You want cards that are good most of the time you cast them. You want cards that are good most of the time you cast them. You do not want cards that are amazing in some games, but do nothing in others. You want cards that are good most of the time you cast them. I've lost to my own Corpse Blooms and Hunting Allosaurs thanks to this card, just like everyone else. I've heard Hammerhand Horror Stories. Those things happen. But sometimes you spend four or six power to do nothing. Absolutely nothing. Remember those times. Burn them into your brain. This is exactly the kind of card you want to avoid. In a huge number of games, I pretty much guarantee you would have rather spent that four to six power on any vanilla unit. Section six, conditional spells. Not all removal spells are created equal. Death Strike and Feeding Time are examples of unconditional removal in that they can target any unit on the board. Annihilate is an example of conditional removal with a very easy condition to meet. Lightning Strike is conditional removal because you need the creature to attack first. Chemical Rounds is an unconditional 2 damage. Gun Down is a conditional 5 damage. The easier a condition is to meet, the better the removal spell is. You want to minimize the amount of conditional removal in your deck, though conditional removal is almost always better than no removal, than no removal at all if you're stuck in that spot. Ensnare. Ensnare is a justice card. It's a fast spell. It costs one, and it says kill an attacking enemy unit with flying. This card is doubly conditional. The creature has to be both attacking and have flying. I've played this card in the past. I can imagine decks where I'd play it in the future. And I got blown out by it. I wrote earlier this week, so a couple months ago. All that being said, ugh, this card is good in a... This card is good a certain percentage of the time, but other games it's just dead. Think about how bad it is when you mulligan and lose a card. Effectively, the same thing happens if you have a dead card in your hand. You can put this card in your deck, it will usually find a target, and sometimes it will be great. But I hate staring at this card in my hand and just hoping for a target. I have to be desperate for interaction to put this in my deck, 
though I'm quite happy to grab an etching an etchings and put it in my market. Um, of everything that I've written, I think the thing that I most people have disagreed with the most is my evaluation of ensnare. Um, that it's better than um, than I give it credit for. But I, w I do want to say that you have to evaluate cards within within each set. So, like if it's if Ensnare were in available in set one, where I haven't played that many drafts, but I've been losing to a lot of flyers, like they seem to be everywhere. I think Ensnare in set one would be at least the first copy would probably be an auto include because there are so many flyers. Um, whereas in set nine, I don't really feel like that's the case. So I feel like the condition, those conditions are just harder to meet in set nine um, than they would be, for example, like in set one. So it's, it's not that I hate cards like Ensnare altogether. It's that, you know, there are formats where I think it would be really good. Like Violent Gust is two and a primal, deals five damage to a creature with flying. Not usually a card I play, but I've started to put a copy in my decks in set one because flyers are so abundant. So... Card evaluation will value from set to set, um, and a card like Ensnare will always have some value. Like, as long as there are flying units in a set, Ensnare will have some value. I just don't think that it finds a unit, like a target that I want to hit often enough in set 9 to justify putting it in my deck. Like, I'd rather just have Rebuke if I could. Um, but I do appreciate the feedback that people gave about disagreeing with my opinion on ensnare um i think it's perfectly fine to to disagree on on how playable a card is so i don't love putting it in my set nine decks but i will do it um whereas if it were available in set one i think i would include at least one copy in all my justice decks so your evaluation of cards don't exist in a vacuum um, and they can change from set to set. That's part of what makes Limited so awesome, is when we get a new set, it's a completely new puzzle. So even if we're playing with a lot of the same cards, um, their value can change pretty significantly depending on what the rest of the set looks like. So that's Ensnare. Let's get to Envelop. Envelop is uh, one white, or one... Time. That's what it is. Holy. Yeah, it's time. Envelope is one time. <laughs> it's a fast spell. It says, put an attacking enemy unit into the enemy hand. <laughs> I guess I got all worked up talking about Ensnare. I will play this card, but I will not like it. If I really need to trigger the multiple Blur Haze Worms in my deck and don't have Metal or Forget, sure, I'll play it. But I find myself unhappy with how this card performs most of the times that I put it in my deck. Like pretty much every card mentioned, there are going to be times when it's great. But I strongly encourage you to take note of when these cards are ineffective or straight up bad. I am so much higher on a card like Teleport. This runs contrary to the Martin Yuzo rule, uh, which I'll discuss a little later. Um, but the extra flexibility that Teleport provides, Teleport costs two, two, time or no cost two but a single time it's a fast spell and it says put a unit into its owner's hand 
The extra flexibility that Teleport provides is worth the extra one cost. You can bounce your own creatures to use their ultimates again, mess with opponent's blocks when you attack, save your creatures from removal spells, and do 50 other things that Envelop simply can't do. You want cards that are flexible, like Teleport, not cards that are conditional, like Envelop. Section 7. Filling Deck Rolls What does my deck want? I constantly ask myself this question after I've decided what colors I'm in. Though I don't usually have specifics in mind, this means that I always have an idea of what I want my deck to look like when it's finished, even if it's just to have a good curve with some interaction. If I'm drafting Felon, my deck wants a lot of good removal and card draw. It doesn't care about powerful two drops. If I'm drafting Xenon, my deck really wants cards I can play on my opponent's turn. At the very least, I ask myself what my deck wants in between packs, though it's something that's always in the back of my mind. Sometimes it's specific, like seeing that my deck needs two drops, so I have to take them over almost everything else in pack four. In other cases, it's vague, like my deck really wants a piece of interaction or two out of pack four to be complete. Here's the Cavs deck roll checklist. Creatures, removal spells, combat tricks. When I draft in deck build, here are the essential roles that I'm thinking about and looking to fill in my deck. Two drops, interaction, top end slash win condition. That's generally how I think um, while I'm drafting, is, is I look to fill those roles. Those three always stay, but certain archetypes have other roles that need to be filled. My mental list for Felon, for example, would probably look like this. Uh, two drops. Again, this is not for set one. This is not for the set one Felon Flyers deck. This is for Felon Control in set nine. Um, my mental Felon list for Felon for set nine, for example, would probably look like this. Two drops. Interaction, preferably unconditional removal. Card draw. Recursion and or bomb. Recursion is an important role to fill in the Fel deck, to fill in the Felm deck. So I will first pick a False Demise over better cards in pack four, like an Ancient Serpent, if that role hasn't been filled yet. A Praxis deck probably has a mental checklist like two drops, interaction, top end slash win condition, and five cost spells, um, because five cost spells are an essential part of that deck functioning properly. I know I always mention two drops first, but that's because they're so important and go into every deck I build. A little less important and eternal than magic, but still important. I feel so far behind if I don't do anything until turn three. Um, in terms of quadrant theory, you will always find yourself in the developing stage of the game. Like you are guaranteed to be in that in that phase. So, um, so you always want to have cards that have an impact in that phase of the game. And the way that I generally think of that is two drops. But if I had a Felon deck with you know, two Valley Clan Sage, two Cheerful Shepherds, and three Lightning Strikes, I would be quite pleased. Um, and I would count that as basically seven two drops or seven things to do in the developing, in the developing phase. So um, I always mention two drops. They're always on my mind. Once you figure out what colors you're in, 
you should determine what roles need to be filled in that specific deck. The further you are in the draft, the more you should be looking to fill roles instead of just taking the best card available. For example, I would never take Teleport over Season Spelunker, Pack 2, Pick 2, because the unit is so much better. But I would take Teleport in a heartbeat towards the end of Pack 3 if the interaction roles still needed to be filled in my deck. Let's look at the 2-drop units, and here I have a deck list, another deck list of better-ups. Um, it's a Recano list. Um, the two drops include three Blazing Renegade and an Overheating Minibot. Gross. But they fill the two drop role in this deck, and that's far more important than their individual card quality. If the decks you draft consistently have a good curve, a mixture of units and spells, and cards that impact the board, I promise you will have the opportunity to win more games even if the cards you're playing aren't great. I loved Sunnyvale's example on episode 79 of Eternal Journey. Sometimes your deck just needs a Direwood Rampager. Put the stupid 6-4 in your deck if you have to. It doesn't feel great while you deck build, but it sure feels good to have something to, to do with 6 power on turn 6. And... <laughs> I didn't know Eternal's tournament history when I wrote this, so I didn't realize that Sonny had, like, such an, an impressive eternal uh, tournament resume. When I wrote this, in my mind, I was just like, yeah, this Sunnyvale person knows knows to put Direwood Rampager in his deck. Like, this, yeah, this dude knows what's up. Section 8, the Martin User Rule. I know this is a draft rule, not a deck-building rule, that exists because of deck-building constraints. I learned it as the Martin Yuza rule, um, and Martin Yuza is a Magic Hall of Famer, an absolutely phenomenal limited player. Um, so I learned it as the Martin Yuza rule, and that's what I call it in my head while I draft. But Gavin Verhey, um, who wrote the um, the article about the curve, he attributes it to Charles Aceman Dupont, so credit to him if he's the originator. The rule is as follows. All other things being equal, draft or play the cheaper card. If you're deciding between a 2-drop and a 4-drop halfway through pack 2, and you're really not sure which one to take, take the 2-drop. This is only meant to be a tiebreaker. If it's close, if you're really not sure which card is better or which one your deck wants, just take the cheaper card. It's unusual to finish a draft and find you have too many cheap spells. Casting multiple spells per turn is usually a sign that your game is going well. If you're not careful and just keep taking the most powerful card in the pack, though, it's easy to end up with a deck full of cards that cost 5, 6, or 7 power. All other things being equal, for example, quality, roll, take the cheaper card. Section 9. Splashing. The Rule of Three. I don't know who to attribute it to, but conventional wisdom is that you want at least three sources of a color for every card you splash. So if you want to splash one Tota Pioneer in your Combray deck, you need three red sources. If you want the Pioneer and Might Weaver, you need four red sources. One very important note is that you don't want to just add three fire sources to your power base and call it good. Your power base will be horrendous. You won't draw your primary or secondary colors consistently, and you won't have any fun. If you have a Seek Power and a Trailmaker, though, 
you can count those as red sources and only add one fire sigil to your deck. My personal bar for splashing cards is high because the cost of a potentially dead card is significant. I'll jump through a couple hoops to splash feeding time if my deck is light on removal, but I won't compromise my power base to splash feeding time if I'm otherwise happy with my removal spells. Not being able to cast your cards obviously hurts your win percentage, but it's also incredibly unfun. I've lost plenty of long, complicated games that were really enjoyable. I've never lost a game with uncastable cards in hand and thought it was fun. Those games are miserable. In general, you want your splash cards to be impactful later in the game. It's usually incorrect to splash for something like a 2-drop, even a very good one, because your chances of playing it on turn 2 are so slim. This isn't true for removal spells like Annihilate, which is equally good on turn 2 or turn 20. I never bend or break the rule of 3. My decks will always have at least 3 sources for a splash card. One thing in my personal game that I'm working on is uh, mentally dealing with when I um, draw my splash card and don't draw a source, even though I follow that rule. Even if you follow the rule of three, drawing your splash card and not drawing a source is still, it's, it's unlucky, but it's still within, perfectly within the normal range of variance. And so that's something that I'm, I'm working on reminding myself. Something I learned from Reed Duke watching one of his videos is that the proper way to handle those situations is... I, you know, I gave myself an, an opportunity to get unlucky, and I got unlucky. Um, and every time you decide to splash a card, you are giving yourself the opportunity to get unlucky, even if you do follow splashing rules or the rule of three. Um, it's just giving yourself an opportunity to get unlucky, and that's why my own personal bar for splashing cards is, is pretty high. The rule of three applies when the card you want to splash requires a single faction to cast. You shouldn't be splashing for cards with double influence requirements. It's greedy and you shouldn't do it. But just in case you do, here's what it should look like. Let's say I'm a lesion and open the Unforgiven in pack four. If I have a Forbidden Research, I'd consider taking it and looking for two shadow symbols. If I have a Forbidden Research and a Petition, I'll take the Unforgiven and then take the first shadow symbol I see. Double Double influence from the symbol, double influence from the petition, double influence from the forbidden research. Three sources. I'm a lesion, so I'm already planning to play until the late game, and the card is powerful enough to warrant splashing. This is all assuming there's not a very good time or primal card in the pack, in which case I would just take the card that I could easily cast. Section 10. Bending or breaking the rules. A saying I learned from a college professor but a quick Google search attributes similar quotes to Picasso and the Dalai Lama, who probably said it first, um, goes roughly like this. You have to learn the rules so you know which ones you can bend and which ones you can break. This applies well to both writing and deck building. When I didn't know anything about Eternal Draft, I just applied the drafting and deck building rules. Once you learn a format, though, you start to figure out which rules you can bend and which ones you can break. Another better up deck list that I really love, this is what it looks like when, ex when an experienced drafter knows how to break slash bend the rules. See if you can find the outlier on this curve. 
So there is a Xenon deck, and the curve looks a little bit, looks normal until you get over to the 7 plus column, and there's a huge spike there. If you drafted your deck without a real plan, and your curve has a column like that, go ahead and click the Edit Deck button before you play your games. This deck, however, has four units that produce power, one that potentially ramps and fixes, and one that makes five of the seven plus cost cards cheaper. This is knowing when you can get away with it. This comes with experience. I can't speak for better up, but in my case, it also comes with building a lot of really bad decks while figuring out what I can get away with and what I can't. Here's an example of a deck that I got away with. So it's one of my 7-0 lists. It's a Combray list that splashes Changey Stick. And I have a few notes. Uh, Changey Stick. I felt like I needed another piece of interaction in this deck, so splashing the third color was worth it. I have a Seek Power and two Unbreakable Tradition that can produce Primal, so putting a single Primal Sigil in my power base gave me four total sources um, for a card that I'm pretty much always planning to play in the late game in this deck. Um, so it fills a role in my deck and follows the splashing rules. Uh, the deck had two Sand Warriors, which was a little bit greedy without time symbols. Um, I wasn't planning to like aggro them out on turn two or anything like that. Um, and I had six other units that I could play on turn two. Um, the fact that Unbreakable Tradition could produce double time is what kind of swayed me because uh, a 3-3 three, three that costs zero power is still a good play on turn five. So if I played Unbreakable Tradition and then just dropped Sand Warrior as a blocker, um, that's a pretty good play. Um, and I wrote, especially if you're attacking with a 10-10 Ancient Machinist and need a blocker. Yes, that is true. Um, and then three, there's only one rare in the deck. It is, I don't even know the name of it. Um, Shadowland Wanderer, six drop ambush creature. Um, yeah, that I was always paying full price for was the only rare in the deck. Um, the deck lists that I use from Better Up also, if you look at them, don't have a whole lot of, uh, like crazy rares. They're just pretty functional, well-built decks. Um, Back to the rating, this deck was definitely bending the rules a little bit with the power requirements. I'm not convinced that the 10 times 7 justice split in my power base was optimal, even though it worked out. Um, so this is me kind of seeing how far I could bend the rules. Um, I wouldn't be looking to draft this in the draft championship. I didn't draft this in the draft championship, though the results could not have been worse. Um, so there's that. Section 11 Always play 45 cards, um, 40 in Magic. Um, this is written from a purely competitive standpoint. One of the things that I actually love about Eternal and Magic and these games is that people can enjoy them for different reasons. So if your goal is to maximize your win percentage, you should always play 45 cards. Um, always. If your goal is just to have a good time and you want to play more than 45 cards, have at it. Um, but if your goal is to maximize your competitive edge, just always play 45 cards. Section 12. Be boring. Losing games to rares feels awful. I get it. I really do. 
Those losses sting the most and stick with us the longest. It can seem like great players always have rares in their deck. There are a few reasons for this. One, high-level drafters, Ben Stark, William Huey Jensen, Paul Rietzel, not me. I do my best impression of them. High-level drafters prioritize being able to cast their cards and build decks accordingly. They're usually able to cast their rares when they draw them. Two, great drafters maximize the value of their best cards. You can put Maeve Walker of Eons in any Combray deck, and she'll be great. But there's a big difference between building around the Maeve you got in pack one compared to just slotting in the Maeve you were lucky enough to open in pack four. Number three, if there's a way to play a sweet rare that adheres to deck building fundamentals, great drafters will find a way. And when their power base doesn't support that sweet rare, they put it in their pool where it belongs. So yes, great players seem to have more rares, and there are some reasons for that. But I also want to acknowledge something. It's very possible you lost because you got unlucky. Honestly, of course there are games where I feel like I outplayed my opponent, my overall deck was better, and then I lose after they cast Roland Merciless or any other just bomb-level card. The enlightened perspective is that variants just didn't go my way that game. Sometimes you lose to bomb rares. It's just part of what we signed up for. My reaction in the moment is usually something more like, Oh, cool! Fun game! So glad I did all that hard work! And then I rage draft. I'm a flawed individual, and I'm working on it. The larger truth, though, the one that takes so many games of limited to learn, is that your ability to apply drafting and deck-building fundamentals will decide far more of your next 10,000 games than the number of rares your opponent plays against you. If you're newer to draft or looking to build better limited decks, here's my advice. Be boring. Try to draft two-color decks with a good curve and cards that impact the board consistently. Take the two-drop that your deck wants, even though it's not exciting. Take the Direwood Rampager and put that big, dumb 6-4 at the top of your curve if that's what your deck needs. The truth is that increasing your win percentage doesn't always look flashy. No one at your local game store is going to grab their buddy and say, Come here and check out this game! Shab is using all of his power, like, every turn! You don't always get to outsmart your opponent. Sometimes you win games because you cast cards with your simple, efficient, two-color deck while your opponent hopes their power base works out. Boring is correct a lot of the time. Boring wins games. You know what's not boring? Games of Eternal with interesting decisions. Drafting boring decks will provide you with a lot of those. Learn the rules for building consistent decks. Apply the rules. Internalize the rules. Make it to masters with the rules. And then, figure out how you can break them. And that is the audio version of Be Boring. Thank you again um, to Palomaru of Farming Eternal for hosting uh, this episode so that um, this recording can get out into the world and people can hear it. So huge thank you 
to Farming Eternal and Padamaru. Um, if you would like to ask me questions or find me, the best place to do so is in the Farming Eternal Discord. Um, you can shoot me an email at shop214 at gmail.com. Just I tried to create one for Let's Talk Limited, but apparently that name is taken. Um, so yeah, and if you would like to hear more audio recordings in the future, please consider uh, checking out the Patreon. Um, otherwise, yeah, I just I hope that you've enjoyed it. And happy drafting.